Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, we're just coming off of a hiatus from our last episode in early December, recharged and with a new string of exciting interviews on the way. For this episode, I spoke to Lindsay Schutel, a South African journalist in Johannesburg. While Lindsay is ostensibly a freelancer at the moment, she's coming off a string of full-time jobs for the Associated Press, the African edition of the startup news website Quartz, and a couple of African TV stations. We talk about her background growing up in the wake of apartheid, going through a string of journalism degree programs, and she also tells us about her story on how Chinese manufacturers killed the local textile industry in the Democratic Republic of Congo. At Lindsay's suggestion, we also discussed a February 2019 article in the Columbia Journalism Review called Rethinking Foreign Reporting at the AP. I remember at the time that article caused quite a stir on Twitter and among my journalist friends. Lindsay and I have a fascinating, if somewhat all-over-the-place conversation about whether publications like the Associated Press should hire locals or foreigners to be international correspondents. We also talk about Lindsay's frustration at the lack of a clear path for locals to get to the higher levels of international organizations, the disparity in benefits and pay between locals and those who get so-called expat packages, and many, many other issues raised by that story. Her take is quite different from what I'd heard from my cohort of China and Brazil journalists, forcing me to consider some sides of the debate I hadn't thought about previously. I'll post a link to this story in our episode description and on our show page. Also, please note that this conversation took place in November before the hiatus. So if we refer to this year or last year, we're talking about 2019 or 2018. Just one last thing to highlight about this episode. There is no backstory like I usually mention in the intro of how I know Lindsay, because I don't know Lindsay. This interview is the first time I ever spoke with her. This year will mark an exciting new phase where I broaden my horizons and speak to more journalists I don't know, helping us to reach into new geographies, publications, and levels of journalistic experience. I'm very excited about the diverse array of interviewees I have in the pipeline. But if you would like to suggest someone to interview, please email me at foreignpod at gmail.com. I'm always looking for recommendations. That's it. Here's my interview with Lindsay Schutel, a journalist in South Africa. So I'm talking to Lindsay Schutel, a freelancer in South Africa. Thanks a lot for talking to me, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Usually to start out, we have you talk a little bit about what your surroundings are, what city you're in, and what kind of week you've had with work. I'm in Johannesburg, sitting in Soweto right now at my mother's home. I'm visiting for the weekend. I usually live in downtown Joburg, which is interesting. <laughs> well, not, not quite downtown, <laughs> just outside downtown. So it's peaceful enough, far enough for you to hear what's going on, but not quite be in the thick of it, which is some nice respite from having grown up here in the township. So the last weeks, I have just, I worked for a news station, 24-hour news station that just started up here. It's called Newsroom Africa. And it started up in May, just ahead of the elections. And I was asked to join. And I worked with them for six months, getting the channel off the ground. And so I've just finished. So I'm on what I call a bit of a sabbatical and just sort of rethinking what direction to take in the next year. Sure. Yeah. I noticed you had been working for Quartz, but it, it looks like you also have a lot of broadcast clips. I, I guess, is that what you're thinking about? Whether you want to do more text or do more video and audio? Or what do you mean by considering next step? 
perhaps? What I'm thinking about now is the kind of stories I'd like to tell. I graduated in 2010, so next year will be a decade. And so I'm sure. trying to figure out what happens with the next decade. I think, you know, straight out of grad school, um, I graduated from Columbia in 2010 and straight out of grad school, it had always been, you know, who do you work for? What's the name of the place? And um, and that sort of thing. And I think I focused quite significantly on that. But I now like to just stop and think about, well, I've learned quite a bit in the last 10 years and I've gotten to see some amazing places and do some stories that I'm really proud of. But what am I doing with it for the next 10 years? You know, because journalism is changing so significantly. It's trying to figure out where exactly I fit into that. I did broadcast and text at the same time because, you know, when I got to grad school in 2009, that had been the year when the full swing of the Great Recession and um, it was not looking good. And you know, it was the first day and they kind of gave us a warning to say, yeah, there are a lot of layoffs. We're not sure you're going to get a job for you international students. Don't even think about it unless you're going to marry an American. That, that didn't work out for me. <laughs> not for lack of trying. <laughs> yeah. And, and then what they did was, it was the first year where they, I, think that, I can't remember exactly what they called it. I think it was new journalism, what they called digital journalism at the time. But it's just a reflection of how quickly things have changed. They had us learn video and text at the same time. And that's where I began to learn broadcast. And when I got back to South Africa and I was trying to find work, which didn't happen immediately, I was able to find work in broadcast before I did for the newspaper. When I applied to go to Columbia, my intention was to study newspaper journalism. And to this day, I have not worked in a newspaper save uh, for an internship in the Eastern Cape. I worked for an old newspaper called Grocuts in a small town in Grahamstown, which is where uh, Rhodes University Journalism School was. And yes, I was part of their media studies program. So I had to find some other way to figure out how to get some practical experience. So I knocked on the door of the local newspaper editor and asked if I could intern and help out. And he said, sure. He put me on the desk as a sub-editor for a bit. And then I think within a week, I was out reporting stories in this little town, which is just a microcosm of South Africa. My first front page was about uh, Zimbabwean journalists fighting against xenophobia in Grahamstown. And so that's been... You know, it's been a recurring theme for bigger newspapers. And Crowcuts is this tiny newspaper that still has its printing press in the basement of the paper. So you go down and watch the paper being printed. Yeah, that was the last time I've had I've had any work in a newspaper. Still, that's great to get at least a little bit of it. I mean, I remember my first newspaper job. Also, I guess the only time I worked at a newspaper, walking into the back room where the printing press used to be, and it was just this huge open area. And you could only yeah. imagine what it must have been like. Cool, you got a final t- taste probably, but I, I doubt that's going to be a common experience anymore to see papers being printed. But uh, maybe maybe we're actually getting ahead of ourselves because I usually go in chronological order. I guess let's start way back at the beginning. Um, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And just give us a little bit of a sense of uh, what it was like. Sure. So I am South African. I was born in Johannesburg. I grew up in, I think we moved here from the age of five. So Soweto is Africa's largest town and it was a segregated area created by the apartheid government. And I lived and grew up in, and I'm currently speaking to you from a section of that called El Dorado Park. It's ironically named, as with most... With most apartheid neighborhoods. So this was essentially a segregated area for colored people in South Africa. And colored means people who are mixed race, not necessarily a white parent and a black parent, but rather people who are the descendants of people who are mixed race. It was a different category under apartheid. They're also usually people who are descendants of slaves from the Cape and also along the what we call the Great Trek area. So this is a bit of background on that because I understand the use of the word colored could be quite controversial and yet it's a form of identity that about nearly 10% 
that South Africans use. So I thought that would be some good background. For sure. So I grew up here. In 1994, I was about seven years old when the budget ended. But of course, you know, things didn't quite magically end immediately. So my first school I went to was a nearby school and all our pencils still had stamps called Colored Affairs. And my birth certificate had my racial identifier on quite immediately. I had a code, you know, every South African had a code at the end, every Black South African, uh, about what your identity would be. So I still had that. It changed in later years. But I was in an overcrowded school run by the Department of Colored Affairs for years. And then the German International School was holding scholarships for children from the townships. And I wrote a test and got in. And I think that essentially changed my life. A school said to my mom, you know, I think it's best that you find a way to get out and we're integrating now. So you should try and get on that. So what they did was, this was in the early 90s, is that they bust children from the townships into the suburbs. So it was quite a culture shock having grown up here. Unfortunately, it's an area known for gangsterism and in later years, drug activity. But it was also an area, it was the only place I knew and it was an area of jazz music on a Sunday and church and my favorite pastries and, you know, where all your family is and where the whole street felt like your family. So it was quite a shock and it was all I, I'd known except for Northern KwaZulu-Natal, which is where my mother's from. So every holiday, she didn't want us hanging around here for holidays. So she would send us, ship us down to my grandmother in a rural area. Mm-hmm. Um, there we had no electricity for quite a while. Um, it was, again, on sort of like the cusp of apartheid in so I was old enough to remember when we finally got electricity, when we finally got running water and flushing toilets. That was huge for us. And just bathrooms. And being a kid when that happened. Yeah, so coming back to Joburg, so we, I was being bussed in and out and I was bussed to suburban Johannesburg, which was a shock to the system because apart from the fact that it was leafy and green and beautiful and quiet, the international school also happens to be what was then one of Johannesburg's wealthier suburbs. So mm. out of a place where poverty seemed entirely normal. Not not that we necessarily grew up in poverty. We were my mum's a nurse, so we were better off than a lot of people in our street. But you know, not that far off. And so then you would bust into this area of wealth, and suddenly you were in a class with kids who were white. You never, I'd never interacted with any white kids up until then. I think I was eleven years old by then. And my mum, of course, now has to be on a parent-teacher meeting with a white parent who she's also never really interacted with as an equal. So <laughs> it was a culture shock for all of us. So you go to this. German international school and in the immediate aftermath of apartheid, I mean, was it just awkward? Were there people who didn't want you at that school? How did you experience it? Because it was an international school and it was subsidized by the German government, they'd started bringing in black children before the official end of apartheid. Very few of them and the numbers had slowly began to increase. So it was awkward, but parents were briefed that the world was changing and this was a stance of the German government that they were to integrate education in South Africa. So there weren't necessarily, as we saw in other schools, and frankly still today, you know, sort of protests and parents standing up saying they don't want black children in the schools, the incidents of overt racism. There were incidents of racism, children saying the K-word during a basketball match, for example. Um, yeah, the K-word? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Uh, the K word. Yeah, should I explain that? Maybe. I mean, I mean, I'm from the U.S., so obviously we know what the N word is. But the K word, I can't say. The K word is South Africa's version of the N word. Quite frankly, it, yeah, that's that's literally what it is. It's the word kaffir. I hate saying it, um, but some people say it far more comfortably than I do. And it comes from the Arabic word for non-believer, and it became a word that meant black people, and it was derogatory. There was a time when that word was thrown around at school in the playground 
on on the court. But the school dealt with it quite decisively, and I think that made a difference. And then, of course, not only have I had I never really interacted with white people, I've now my teachers are all white, and there were the little what we now understand to be microaggressions, things in the way that because my mother tongue is Afrikaans, I speak it in a very strong colored accent, and my Afrikaans teacher, who was white, just point blank told me that that is not how you speak Afrikaans. That's how brown people speak, and that is just not acceptable. So little things like that would happen. So did you change the way you speak because of that? I, my Afrikaans, yeah. I think my Afrikaans accent was eternally ruined. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm still so self-conscious when I speak Afrikaans. Uh, I don't quite sound black enough and I don't quite sound white. And it's just kind of caught in the middle. And I think to an extent, my English is probably the same as well. Which, uh, which do you prefer to speak or which are you more comfortable with? I speak English and I swear in my head in Afrikaans. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. And so how how was uh, the rest of school for you? Did you start to take an interest in journalism and writing back then or was it later on? I loved writing even then already. So I wrote, you know, essays. I did well in all three languages because I did English, Afrikaans and German. Okay. Um, and I just loved English literature and was convinced I was going to be a writer and told my mother. And she then said to me, you know, are you planning to start today? Because <laughs> who are <laughs> Because who on earth is going to be a writer from where we came from? So then the most practical way of being a writer seemed like to be a journalist. And so I think even before I finished high school was hell-bent on becoming a journalist because I tend to have that kind of focus. So I went to the University of Johannesburg. Quite frankly, not my first choice, but I couldn't afford the premier journalism school. So I went to UJ and I made the best of it. I joined the campus newspaper and it turned out to be really great because that's where I got my first clips from. So I started as a sub-editor and then became the arts editor of the newspaper. And that was a lot of fun. I'm guessing in high school, it's not like the U.S. There wasn't a high school newspaper you did or anything like that. No, no high school newspaper. But there's one school project that I remember where we had to create our own newspaper for English. And I threw my heart and soul into that project. You know, I think back about it and I wrote a mildly embarrassing. Aliyah had died in that year. And so I wrote this long, heartfelt obituary about her. Sorry, who had died? Uh, the R&B singer Aliyah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I remember <laughs> But embarrassing obituaries aside, I loved that project and I think that that kind of stuck with me. And then we did have an annual journal that came out. And so I wrote for that. I'd written a poem for it at some point. I wrote about our experiences as students. So whenever there was an opportunity, I did try to write. That's great. And then, especially since you later went to Columbia for a graduate degree, I'm curious how journalism education in South Africa might differ from elsewhere. So when I was looking around to try and find out where I could do journalism, there is the University of Witwatersrand, which we just called FITS, because that's quite a mouthful then, its full name. Sorry, but, what's uh, it called? <laughs> University of the Witwatersrand. It's an Afrikaans word, white water ridge. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, we just call it WITS now. So they didn't have an undergrad program. They had a postgrad program. I don't know what undergrad is like in the US, but I think that focus on journalism in postgraduate was probably smarter. I think a lot of the stuff that we learned in undergrad at the University of Johannesburg kind of fell away in the end because, for example, in third year, which was his final and senior year, we did something called e-journalism, which would be an attempt to explain digital journalism at the time. And it was so out of whack. So I think in that sense, it still had a lot to catch up with. And I think uh, because it didn't have a practical requirement, say, for example, the way uh, Rhodes University did, where students actually had to produce a paper every week or produce photographic or TV projects because the university that I went to didn't necessarily have that, just 
having volunteered at the newspaper and I had to work a job because we didn't have much cash. So I was working as a lecturer's assistant, also working at the student newspaper and then maintaining my grades for scholarship. And so in hindsight, because they were so theoretical, a lot of it fell away because they just couldn't keep up with how journalism was changing. And I think that a missed opportunity was how the campus itself was changing because the year that we arrived, when I started at the University of Johannesburg, that was also the year that it was forced to change its name and integrate. It used to be called the Rand Afrikaans University and it was the premier urban university for Afrikaans students. All lectures were in Afrikaans, etc. And there was a Black-only university here in Soweto called Vista College. And in that year, in 2005, they were forced to integrate. And so now these campuses had to learn to work together. So I think while we at the newspaper covered that quite extensively, I think the journalism department really missed an opportunity to talk about how campuses were changing. The the other part Um, I was confused about, you did say you interned when you were at Rhodes University, which was not the same as Johannesburg University. So did you go back to school then later or, or how did that work out? So what I did was, I've always been a scholarship kid. So I did my undergrad at UJ. And so how it works in South Africa is you have a three-year bachelor degree, bachelor's of arts, or in my case, bachelor's of arts in journalism. And then you do your honors degree, which you don't have to do, but I wanted to do it post-grad. And then you need a certain grades to get in. So I got in and I got a scholarship. I wanted to leave Johannesburg. And so I got into Stellenbosch and I got into Rhodes. Rhodes University is in the Eastern Cape and it's an English university. And I opted for Rhodes because I got a full ride. Yeah, I got the Andrew Mellon Scholarship. So it was a journalism and media studies, so more theoretical again. And I wanted more practical experiences and training. So that's when I went over to the local newspaper and asked them if I could intern. That's how that happened. But I have to be honest, I loved working at the newspaper, but I just wasn't sure that I wanted to be a journalist when I was finished. So I thought that, you know, maybe my role should be more academic. So I uh, applied to do my master's degree in international relations and got a scholarship and came back to Joburg. But at the same time, had applied to Columbia to get friend off my back, mainly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have grand ambitions to go to Columbia. I was dating a guy at the time and he was like, you should go there. I think it's going to be great for you. He had come across Howard French's work and found that, and then Howard French was teaching at the Columbia Journalism School at the time, and he still is. And um, he's like, you should go to Columbia. I've visited their campus and it's a great campus. You'll enjoy it. You should go to New York. And I was, you know, I was just trying to get out of Joburg. I hadn't thought that far. And then I had a friend who was an exchange student from Canada and she was on my case and she thought it was a great, great idea and I should definitely do it. And to get them both off my back, you know, by the time the application came, that guy and I had long broken up, but my friend was still on my case. I thought, okay, the more I did about it, the more I wanted it, but it was a long shot. And I applied and came back to Joburg with the intention of doing a master's degree in international relations and possibly working for the UN or something like that. Oh, midway through my studies, I was interning at the Institute of International Affairs. Then I got into Columbia and that set me right back on the path of journalism. Why were you doubting whether you wanted to do it after finishing your honors degree? What what made you rethink it? So, well, in the early 2000s and towards that time, South Africa was beginning to play a much greater role on the continent. We'd been cut off for so long. We were in isolation for years. And the president that we had at the time had many flaws. But one of his things was that he wanted the country to integrate into the rest of the continent and into the rest of the world. So we had, you know, our military were no longer terrorizing their own citizens. They were now playing parts as peacekeepers. And I just wanted to be a part of that. And I was just really interested in what was happening on the African continent. And because South African journalism, and still to this day, tends to be rather inward looking, 
thinking. I wanted to be out and I wanted to go out and I wanted to see what the rest of Africa looked like. And so I thought that the best way to do that and the best way to have some sort of impact was to participate in a program like the United Nations or Southern African Development Community. So when I came back, I was you know, hell-bent on going that way. I even at some point thought, you know, one day I might even be the UN Secretary General. That's how ambitious I was about it. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, I would not do that now. Um, but yeah, so I was just hell-bent on going the diplomatic route. Sure, yeah. So how, how long was your honors degree out of curiosity? Yeah. Okay. So you do three years undergrad, one year honors degree, you get into Columbia, you do a Columbia degree. And I want to ask about that. But first, uh, I'm curious because you're the third person I've interviewed who's got a Columbia graduate degree. And I've noticed that all of them are women. And much less than when I'm interviewing men, most of the men don't have graduate degrees. And I'm just wondering if you think there's anything behind that, if there's something gender related that, you know, it's harder for women in the industry that it's more necessary or if there's nothing to that. Uh, I don't know if that's a polite way to ask it, but if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, that's interesting. I may be mistaken, but in my year, I do believe that there were more women than there were men. And I think that that has increased. I think perhaps, I have to think about that, but I think that maybe it comes down to women always tend to overcompensate. Not that I'm saying that grad school is an overcompensation, but I think that women will want to be far more prepared for a job. You know, the usual women, the, the argument that, and I don't necessarily think that it's 100% true, but that men will apply for a job that they're not quite qualified for and have the confidence to get it, but women will feel that even if they'll miss one thing on the job spec and then feel they're not adequately qualified. And I think that might inform some decisions. I, I can't speak for a lot of the women that applied, but I think that may be something to do with it there, the idea that women they need to be more prepared that they need to do more to get to the same space yeah that's kind of what i was wondering i don't know i can probably look around and see if there's research but anecdotally it uh, seems like there might be something to it and then i guess to what it was actually like i mean i visited columbia when i was in high school and i thought it was amazing it was the top place i wanted to go to you know the campus is beautiful it's right in manhattan and you know i was in love with it and then i didn't get in do it. (laughs) But uh, I definitely get the pull. So uh, you go there and I'm guessing you probably hadn't even been to New York before. And how was the experience for you? So before that, the only time I'd left South Africa was when I took a bus to Mozambique with a friend. (laughs) (laughs) So so it was a lot of fun. It was my first long haul flight. It was the first time I was in the US. So the first time I was in New York, I remember being quite overwhelmed, but I did as much homework as I could. I did as much as I, I could, but I was clearly not prepared. I got lucky and that I had great accommodation. I got a grant from the American embassy here because I, I couldn't afford accommodation and I was like, oh, I might not be able to go and, and they paid for my rent. And so I got this really great apartment that I would never be able to afford now on Hanover Park Street. <laughs> I was sharing it with a Japanese student and then a Nigerian fellow J school student who was a good friend of mine at the time. I mean, to give you an idea, I had to draw a map of my block so that I could figure out how to get from the train stop on, I thought was that, uh, I was on 112th and I had to figure, just to remember to get to the train stop, I think it was 108th or 101st or something like that. So that was a bit of a shock to the system, but also more than the geography of the place was the different culture, particularly in class, Americans of more confident in the sense that they um, encouraged to speak up and to speak out. And American kids compared to the kids that I had grown up with just had opinions on everything, everything. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, so, and I, and quite 
Basically, no one had asked me, hey, what do you think about this? Not really. Not in that sense that American kids are accustomed to. So I had to learn to do that really quickly. Um, I also had to get over the shock of being there because my application, I wasn't sure I would get in. I'd never heard about the place until 2008 and suddenly 2009 I was there. And so that was a, a very quick mental adjustment that I had to do and to figure, well, now that I have this opportunity, what am I what am I going to do with it? And then we used to joke that someone should set up cameras in the J school so that you could turn it into like a reality show because those 10 months are perhaps the most excruciating that anyone has ever been through. Yeah, you know, so I mean, on my first day, I thought, you know, I'd always been a good student. So I thought I would arrive early and try and get ahead because I had never used a Mac in my life. And I had to figure out how to use the Mac and also just try and figure out what the homework was. And I get to the room where my class would be and I am the last to arrive. And that was early. Wow. So that was a really quick wake-up call that I would have to begin working at an entirely different standard. So yeah, so I learned. And then again, I would, I would, I had some really great friends and also Howard French, who was really good to talk to and just bounce ideas off about what happens now and where to go to as a professor. So that was helpful. And then also the great thing about the J School is your beat was the city. So you had to go into New York and go be a reporter and then convince people to speak to you for your Columbia newspaper or in that case, a website and so yeah it was definitely a growth experience not just academically or as a journalist but just also as an individual as a young woman moving through New York for the first time and learning to speak up and to ask questions and to take my place so that was a really interesting experience and also you know the US it was the year of Obama so that was great but there were some race issues that I guess I was a little bit more sensitive to or less sensitive to I remember for example there was the Tea Party issue and students getting quite heated about how to cover it that took some adjustment about, well, what exactly does this mean? And in South Africa, the things the Tea Party was saying and insinuating were things that we were just no longer accepting here. So I was amazed that people could say these things and do these things where just fundamentally the United States prioritizes freedom of speech, South Africa prioritizes dignity. So I, I often struggled with that, with the things that people were able to say in newspapers and on TV about people of color and each other and women and, and how in South Africa we were just beginning to kind of figure that out. So that was on many levels of it was a really interesting time. Yeah, that would have been, uh, well, I was working in South Carolina in the South in 2010, and that's when the Tea Party was getting big. And the interview that came out today is with an old co-worker of mine in South Carolina. And she kind of reminded me that the Tea Party, now I remember it for being small government and changing the nature of the Republican Party. But she pointed out that at the start, it was also very racist. And you would go to rallies and you would see like effigies of Obama with a noose around his neck and things like that. And that it kind of was a movement that started out like that and then legitimized itself. And yeah, so I didn't cover it that much, but I definitely remember that era. Did you go cover any rallies or anything like that of the Tea Party? No, never covered rallies, but I'd kind of to a very junior extent gotten involved in the NABJ or spoke to journalists who were part of the NABJ. And it was something that quite frankly terrified them, particularly the young journalists in my year. They were just, what does this mean when we have this president who is black and we're suddenly having to deal with this onslaught from within the Republican Party. And I remember a real sense of fear, particularly of one journalist who said, as a black man, how am I going to go and cover this group? How am I meant to do this objectively? Definitely, while I didn't cover it, it definitely sparked really interesting ideas about what we were doing and how we were going to cover this. Right. Do you remember any of your projects? Uh, I forget. I think you said, what was your focus 
at Columbia and uh, I guess any projects, if you remember them? Yeah, so my focus was meant to be newspapers. <laughs> and no um, newspapers. So my, my master's project was the interaction between Africans and African-Americans, particularly in the Bronx. There had been one or two incidents and the area I covered was in Mott Haven and it was the project on the one side. And on the other side of the road, you had an increasing number of shops that were owned by Senegalese immigrants. It was informed by South Africa's tensions with, uh, with the rest of the continent, but it wasn't tension in, in the way that it was here, but Africans are beginning to be pulled forward as sort of like an ideal example of an immigrant group where, you know, their kids were doing well, their kids went to universities, etc., and they were really focused kids of immigrants. That story, but they were also black, and there was a growing sense from young African-Americans who I spoke to on that street where they just felt like Africans were beginning to get advantages that they as African-Americans hadn't even begun to take advantage of. And when you're ticking for a diversity job, you know, if you're black, you're black. But if you're the kid of an African immigrant as opposed to the descendant of an African slave, that's an entirely different experience of the United States. And of course, a lot of African parents didn't want to be seen as being African-American. They, they wanted to be separated, but their children were growing up as Americans and they were beginning to deal with issues of race that their parents had never really dealt with. So those were all of those tensions that were just beginning to take shape around about 2009, 2010. Okay, interesting. And did you write, was it more of an academic paper or was it a newspaper format story? or what was the product? So for the Master of Science program, our thesis had to be long features. So mine was a long written feature on the street uh, in Mott Haven. Cool. And then, so you said, you know, when you're graduating, it's the economy is terrible in the U.S., like finding a job there wasn't really an option. So then what happens? I done a full internship with Al Jazeera. They had just started in the U.S., not the Al Jazeera Medical Channel, but the New York Bureau. And I tried to find a job with them but to stay on longer as an intern would require money that I just I just didn't have. And, True. and I hadn't finished my MA here in Johannesburg. So I gradually packed up and came back home and then finished my coursework for my MA and during my thesis I had to find work and just the economy was bad everywhere. I could not find a job in journalism for a good couple of months. I stayed doing research for a while. I just couldn't, yeah, I just couldn't find work. So then my start in news was a bit strange. I got a job at a satire show. A friend of mine was a comedian and I said to him, you know, oh, wow. I, just, I just come out of Colombia and I can't find a job. And he said, okay, you know, I've got this late night news show. It's a, you know, new satire show. We need a researcher. Do you want to come on board? And I said, cool. And so that's what I did. The uh, show's producer laughed throughout my interview and she thought, you know, you could kind of also maybe write. And so I started writing the ticker for the satire show and then kind of graduated to writing my own segments. Cool. Wow. Wow. And yes, yeah, so that show was then nominated for an international Emmy, which was really cool. Uh, so yeah. Oh, wow. And so did you briefly consider going into more of entertainment or where did you go next? I mean, I think, you know, you and your listeners will guess that stand-up comedy was never going to be my thing. I just don't have the delivery and I just I, I was still just determined to be a journalist and so eventually a local news station was hiring 24 hour news station and I got into TV and then I was working on the desk for a while for just 18 months but they were one of the few places that had an Africa department and I was determined to get to the Africa department and so when there was an opening I got the job and worked as a producer for a show called Africa 360 and I got to travel around East and Southern Africa producing programs from places 
places like Rural Madagascar and I got to a town on the border of Rwanda and Burundi, Ethiopia and Addis. So it, we traveled a lot on a very small budget and it was it was amazing. It was exactly the opportunity that I had been looking for and hoping for. This was for what channel? Sorry. It's a channel called ENCA. It was called E News at the time, but it's now called the E News Channel Africa. Okay. And TV was an easy enough transition for you? Exactly because Colombia had made sure that we had some video skills. I was able to work in TV. I knew what was required. And of course, my internship at Al Jazeera helped. So that preparation for the recession came in really handy because when a job opened up at a TV station where there were no newspaper jobs, I was able to do that. Cool. And how long did you do that for? That I did for a year and a half. Then a position at the AP opened up and I was determined to work for the AP. I learned about the AP while I was at Columbia and was hoping to get into their training program, but I didn't. When I graduated, I went over to the AP bureau in, in Joburg and I introduced myself to the bureau chief at the time. They didn't have any openings, but I stayed in contact. And eventually a new bureau chief came and they needed a new writer and a new correspondent. And I applied and I got that job and I got to work for the AP in, in 2014. And that was great experience. Cool. And only in 2014, I, I guess, yeah, just walk me through uh, the sequence of events um, from <laughs> detail now. After producing for the TV station and, and getting to cover the continent, and I should say that a month or two after I left to work for the AP, they shut down their Africa Bureau and laid off everyone because there just wasn't enough money to keep covering the continent. The news station did or the AP did? The news station did. News station, okay. And then I, you know, had started with the AP. And so the AP's Africa office was also run out of Joburg. So the Africa editor sat in the office as well as the South Africa Bureau Chief. So I reported to the South Africa Bureau Chief, but it was essentially everyone was in the same office. So so it was a, it was a really interesting experience. For one, I got to work with stringers around the region and just cultivating those relationships and the sort of experience where when floods break out in Mozambique and you can't get there fast enough and to find someone that you can trust and to work with them. You know, there were times when I had a local journalist dictating over the phone his story and I was writing it out and then typing it out and sending it in. And then I did a lot of my own reporting. I covered Oscar Pistorius' trial. That was probably the biggest story oh, wow, I did. Yeah. And that was, that was crazy. It was again, a really stark learning curve because I think working with WISE, and I guess you'd know this on Reuters, is that first of all, there's the race to be first right, and there's yeah. the race to be accurate. And if you're young and under pressure and sitting in a packed courtroom with rows and rows of other journalists, far more senior than you are, and my bureau chief gave me, he said, you know, why don't you take the Pistorius case for a couple of weeks and see how it goes? <laughs> it taught me to be as precise as possible. It's a kind of thing where, particularly if you're a youngest journalist, having to figure out what exactly is the story from this testimony as it's rolling because you have to file your first lead, second lead and you're thinking of your angle as you're going. You can't just be a stenographer. So there was just a lot happening and because there was all that attention on the case and you knew that what you wrote from the Pretoria courtroom would go out onto other newspapers and I would find my byline in newspapers around the US that I'd never heard of. So that pressure but also the honour of knowing that you're the person bringing that story and you have to do it properly. I think that is an experience I wouldn't trade for anything and that was within story with the AP, but particularly the Pistorius one, because there was just such a focus on it. Yeah, yeah. I remember people in China, where I was at the time, were following it very closely. People found it fascinating. So I guess, why am I not talking to Lindsay Shutel, the AP correspondent right now? <laughs> what what happened that you decided to jump ship? So I remember the experience of deciding to move to courts 
when I got to the AP Bureau, the aggregators let me read the book on the AP and the history of the AP and where it started. And just, you know, being in that legacy of an organization that was that old and that amazing, it was exactly what I was dreaming about. You know, that's what you were almost trained to think about at, at Columbia, like those are the people that you wanted to work for. And then this new outlet started called Quartz. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. They were young and dynamic and they looked at Africa in a really different way. The AP, to a large extent, it's changing the way it looks at, at the continent or the kind of school that it wants to do. But I think that it's still very much a traditional place. And I also just wanted to travel. I miss being able to travel. And unfortunately, as the hierarchy goes, people who get to travel would be the bureau chief and you'd stay in the desk and make sure the things are going well. And that was great, but I was getting itchy feet and quotes was new and exciting and interesting. And I thought, okay, when they contacted me, I thought, oh, this could be fun. And it was quite a pull between, do I go to this new startup that no one has ever heard of that is doing things very differently? Or do I stay here with the old guard and just try and slowly but surely claw my way up the hierarchy? And I have to be frank here in that being a local hire, I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to climb up the hierarchy in that way. Bureau chiefs were still largely people who were flown in from elsewhere and the locals who worked in the office didn't really move to other bureaus. The one person I know of was Michelle Four, who is a brilliant journalist. She's retired now, but she worked for the AP in Zimbabwe. And when the country kicked her out, she worked in Johannesburg and Nairobi and then moved on to the Caribbean. And I don't know, quite frankly, of other Africans who were able to climb through the AP's hierarchy in the same way. And so I thought, well, hmm, I feared I would, I would get stuck always being the local and having to wait for a new bureau chief to come in. And then the focus changes, etc. But again, you would always stay. I don't know if that's the case with the AP now, and I'm open to correction. And I would love if someone from the AP said, no, well, actually, we've had Africans move over to other bureaus, and this is, this is who they are. Um, that would be great to hear, but I've not heard that yet. So yeah, so when Quartz came along, I decided, okay, uh, let's give Quartz a try. How was Quartz? How long were you there? And how was it working for a startup? I mean, Reuters, like AP, a wire service, to a degree, it's commoditized news you need to write for all of the possible newspapers or outlets that could want to use your news. So for that reason, it's neutral, neutral, neutral. Whereas I imagine a place like Quartz, you get to have more of a voice. Did you find that to be true? Yep, that was exactly it. My editor at Quartz, Yinka Dioka, always used to say, we're not going to be Reuters. He himself had worked at Reuters for years before that. And he always said, you're not going to be Reuters. You're not going to be first, but you need to give people a different reason for coming to you. So that's what we did at Quartz. That's what we tried to do. We developed a voice the first day I joined, I was told exactly what Quartz's voice was, that it was evident that it was questioning things at the AP, of course, and, and why services, as you know, just weren't. And I had to learn to have a so-called take on most things. It wasn't just going to be straight reporting. You were meant to tell, well, what does this mean for your audience, for your readers? And I think that was another great lesson. So, I mean, I've been really lucky in the sense where I came from the AP, where there was this emphasis on reporting and accuracy and clearly communicating to an audience anywhere in the world about what the story was. And then I had that really great foundation. And then the next thing I am at Quartz and I'm learning to develop my own voice with that foundation. So that was a really great experience. And Quartz Africa in particular had a vision where, and has a vision where it was meant to focus on innovation. And we can talk about covering Africa in a bit, but the narrative about Africa tends to be quite negative. It tends to be about poverty, about the dark continent, that sort of Condradian view. And the focus on innovation was to say that things are changing on the continent, that there is a new generation who are doing things differently 
technology is playing a huge role in how Africa sees itself and how it's beginning to interact with the rest of the world. And so we wanted to begin to look at that. And also Africa's always been seen, and I think there was, an, was it a Bloomberg article that came out a couple of weeks ago that said Africa is a new land of opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. But that opportunity has always been looked at in terms of natural resources. And of course, Africa's stance was the opportunity was in its people, that young Africans were coming up with new technology. For example, that Africa's financial technology was ahead of many parts of the world, simply because we had to leapfrog other places. So things like Mpesa, things like digital banking, and, and in some cases, like in Tanzania, even digital insurance, micro insurance, were far ahead of other places, simply because those are areas that had to leapfrog and they had young, innovative, hungry populations who want to participate in the world, but don't have time for you to build a physical Wall Street. So they would do it digitally. Of course, there are many, many issues. And I think we were open to that and always clear that, look, one app is not going to change the entire continent or the entire country or solve a problem. I must point out that it was not good news journalism, because I think that the sort of good news about Africa thing can also be quite problematic. It definitely steered clear that it said, look, this is the problem. This is how we're trying to fix it. This is how we can do it differently. And when more traditional news took place, like elections or, for example, the Ebola outbreak, we looked at how things are being done differently and what can we take from that experience as opposed to just the straight news story. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like a very interesting place to work. So how long did you stay there for and what was your next move? Well, I was at course for three years. Of course, it started out that we were going to cover according to our region that we had a correspondent in Lagos, another one in Nairobi and myself in Johannesburg. We were such a small outfit, frankly. I mean, there were only four people, including the editor. And then we shifted our beats. And so what we did was we changed, we shifted on what we were focusing on. And so my colleague in Nairobi focused on China and Africa. My colleague in Lagos focused in tech. And I focused on Africa's changing culture, pop culture, entertainment, and just anything that, that was Africa saying, this is who we are to the world. And then was having lots of fun doing that. And then another 24-hour news station opened up in South Africa. And they called me in and they said, you know, we really like your quote stuff and your take on things. And we know your background in TV. And we were wondering if you could come and do what you've done at Quartz for a TV station. It was a new TV station that wanted to somehow integrate a social media and the internet culture with what it was doing for 24-hour news. Yeah, so in May, I left Quartz and started immediately with another startup. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a sleepless, adventurous six months. And now we are where we are today and you're considering what to do next. Uh, you don't have to say if you're still undecided, but do you have any inkling of what you might do next? So what I am doing for now is trying to complete stories that I started, more ambitious stories that kind of fell by the wayside of daily coverage or um, trying to get a new station off the ground. So, for example, I was a fellow for the International Women's Media Foundation. They do something called the Great Lakes Fellowship where they have female foreign correspondents go to South America and areas in Africa. I went on the Africa trip and I was in the Central African Republic last year. And there are a couple stories that I did there that I haven't quite completed. So I'm working on those right now. Cool. And then you'll sell those, I imagine, as a freelancer to publications? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hoping for. Cool. Now let's talk about this Columbia Journalism Review story. There's a lot about the AP, but I don't think we necessarily need to get into that. I remember at the time it did generate a lot of debate about using foreigners as correspondents internationally versus using local reporters. So I guess just to start very broadly, what are your thoughts on that? Should one or the other be used? Is there a place for both of them? Or how should things be done, do you think? I mean, with that article in particular, not only because 
it focused on the AP and of course I'd worked for the AP and was one of the locals that the AP hired to cover their own area. But what I found really frustrating was the focus on the expat packages and the pay disparity. And also the idea that, you know, the AP had lost a certain quality of journalism because the journalists no longer followed a path of covering your metro beat and then covering a national beat and then an international beat. And I remember being in in J school and that was essentially what they told us that this was the path that everyone had followed because I did the foreign reporting concentration at Columbia in particular. So I was told that you start on the metro beat, you prove yourself, you work your way up and then eventually you get sent to a foreign bureau. The frustration is if you don't have a blue passport, for most people outside of the US have green and maroon passports, I have a green passport. And so if I don't have a blue passport, I can't work in the US and so I can't follow that traditional path. And so does that mean that I'm automatically excluded from being a foreign correspondent and doing the kind of work that foreign correspondents are known for? For me, that was a point of of real frustration. I will concede our journalism training is not necessarily up to the bar of, say, the Columbia J School. Many places aren't. And here in many countries, because journalism as an industry is just so impoverished materially, there just isn't a lot of money to be a journalist and to keep a newspaper going, that African journalists don't necessarily have the training that their counterparts from the US or the UK would have. And so, yeah, there is that. But what I found interesting was that instead of looking at a way to train up locals and saying, okay, well, how do we get you to being at the technical standard of the people that we send in and instead it was seen as a loss an automatic loss i mean anywhere else it's seen as a huge advantage to sort of know your beat. I was listening to one of your previous, I can't remember the name of the journalist right now, if you'll forgive me, I'll remember later, but he was talking about how he was reporting in Texas and just knew his beat. The authorities, he knew who to call and just said, I want to do a big investigation this year, what should I look at? And that's an example of just knowing your area. And I found it strange that African journalists would know their area just as well. They'd know which authorities to talk to, which person might be able to give them a lead, etc. And so knowing your beat and knowing your area was seen as kind of as a disadvantage if you're a local working for an international. But then when it is seen as an advantage is when you are sort of constantly being reduced to a stringer. And so, for example, the people who work as stringers for internationals are a lot of the time fantastically experienced journalists. They are good journalists themselves. They work for their own local newspapers. They break amazing stories. But because they don't work for the proper publication or one with an international reach, they'll always just be the stringer. And what's frustrating is that while I'm not a stringer, I know that in many cases, if you're out with your stringer, how often does the stringer actually get the byline when the parachute journalist gets the byline? And those things are important. No bylines are important. Journalists wouldn't fight for them the way we do if they weren't. So it, it was just what I found frustrating was that it was seen as a loss whereas there were just so many advantages to training up local journalists in international bureaus. Yeah, I can see how it would be difficult to see a pathway of how you get to the higher levels of organizations when yeah, they're not necessarily presenting you with those opportunities. And yeah, it's, it's difficult for me because I come at it from such a different angle. Having been in China, for example, where uh, locals are legally restricted from reporting, so So in that respect, you need foreigners to come in because the locals are literally not allowed to do that under the Chinese government. And also just reporting across languages. Obviously, sometimes you need foreign correspondents who are native English speakers to work in a place where the native language is not English. And when it comes to places like South Africa and elsewhere, it's harder to see why you wouldn't hire a local. And 
I just after that article came out, more my my takeaways and discussions with friends were about the use of fixers and how now I see how you shouldn't necessarily use fixers in that sense. You should hire fixers to be journalists in their own right, and fixers should get reporting credit, and they should be more like stringers who they should be credited as reporters rather than this idea. If you go to a place who hire a fixer and he sets up the meetings, he speaks the language, does all that, but he's kind of viewed as not a journalist. And I will cop to having done that in Myanmar once. I went there for a week and did that. And I now see how that's problematic. And also another discussion on this podcast I've had is in some cases in dangerous situations, it's good to be a foreigner because the worst case scenario is the government kicks you out of the country or you have to flee the country, whereas a local reporter might not necessarily be able to. So, But I mean, look, what I will say is I'm not advocating for internationals to stop sending their own staff because you need people who understand your style and have institutional knowledge. That's huge. Someone else asked me a, a question about that. Well, and they said, well, what responsibility does an outlet like the AP or Times or the Post have to training local journalists? And quite frankly, they don't. And they don't have the resources either. I mean, we're not expecting the AP to start a local journalism training program. They just can't afford it, quite frankly. But I think that with that article in particular, like if you have journalists who lived in the US, who were trained in the US, and I suppose this is rather self-serving of me to say, but then give them a chance. I've had my chance, so I'm, I can say it. But, um, you know, for example, the person that they mentioned in that article was a guy who I know who covers Uganda for the AP, and he'd been to the J school as well. And I well, if you have that kind of candidate who ticks those boxes, then why not? I don't think that it should be a charity organization. I don't think news media has the kind of budgets to run a charity training program at all. But it's sort of just like a fair chance and also to rethink how we look at climbing the ladder in international reporting. International reporting is changing significantly and I think part of the change should be, well, okay, so how do we get the best people for the job and do we move them around? Should they be moved around? What are our expectations for those people? And I will say though with the AP that I think in that year that I was there, I don't know if she's still there, but the Iraq bureau chief is a woman of color and she was then promoted to international editor and they were making a concerted effort to become more diverse and I think that's perhaps the lesson that international reporting should learn but I will say when I sat with the International Women's Media Foundation and you sit around the table and you have dinner and we're all there because we simply just can't afford to pay out of pocket for international trips and stuff and you're really beginning to see a change of the kind of people who are coming to tell stories for one you know with IWMF in particular they were all women and they are just an increasing number of women but they were also women from more diverse backgrounds and with that diversity comes different stories and different takes on places. So when an Asian journalist comes to talk about Africa, she brings with her an entirely different experience. So I think just for that, just to bring new stories, I think it's important to look at how we do international reporting and international journalism and to open it up in a way, but again, not asking for a charity training program. Right. I mean, definitely there's a yeah, need for more diversity in the news business. And yeah, it's just a tough thing to know how to crack. I, I was emailing with another African journalist and he had said basically like, yeah, he looks around and he has no role models because African publications themselves do not usually have the resources to send a lot of foreign correspondents overseas that the pathway isn't clear. And yes, the AP is not going to have some sort of charity journalism training. 
training for this sort of thing. But at the same time, how is it supposed to work? And yeah, I don't know if it's been figured out yet. In terms of me, yeah, it's just very interesting that the reaction to say the China journalists I know or the people in Brazil was very different. And we were thinking about it in a very different way than necessarily a place like Africa and how, how that applies there. I think, I mean, language plays a big part in this as well, right? As you were saying, I don't know what it's like for Francophone Africans working for French outlets, for example. I don't know how open they are, but in Anglophone Africa, you do have the journalists who are able to do it. And also, I suppose when you're local, the advantage, of course, as I said, is knowing your beat. But you often overlook things that foreign journalists would find fascinating and international readers would find fascinating, for example. So, you know, so I, for example, have lived in South Africa my entire life. I've lived in Joburg. And so there are things about Joburg that I might take for granted, like the fact that we are so observant about crime and things like that. And the fact that we have something like a car guard, just just someone who stands in a parking lot and tries to make sure that no one else steals your car. They're never successful. And then you tip them afterward if your car's not stolen. So that's an idiosyncrasy that South Africans would take for granted. But a foreign journalist might say, well, hey, this is worth writing on. So yeah, there's a balance to walk there, definitely. Obviously, the best is to have both foreign and local journalists and not always have the foreign journalists be in the superior position, have it be more mixed. And certainly that that's an advantage of working at larger places that have, you know, a staff that you can have foreigners and locals on it. But I understand that that's also a problem, say, if you have one correspondent in one place, it's not like the organizations have teams of people. Sometimes it's just the one correspondent and that's it. And that's increasingly the case, I think. And I think another dimension is the fact that international outlets are increasingly relying on freelancers. So you'll find college students coming out, saving up. I don't know if you remember the case of the young journalist who was killed in South Sudan. And we'll be increasingly relying on freelancers who don't have insurance, who don't have training, who don't have the protection of a news organization behind them. And they're the ones bringing you the most interesting reports, but at what cost and at what risk? I suppose it's a brave new world for international reporting we were trying to figure out where the world is getting a lot smaller, but there's also a lot less money to go around. So how do we then rethink the way we do international reporting so that you get more diverse voices, but that freelancers are safe? Definitely. And just to come back to the Columbia Journalism Review article and the guy in Uganda, and in general, the fact that one of the main takeaways was we're doing it, it's cheaper, was kind yeah. of the most <laughs> disheartening <laughs> reason to be doing something. Like, I feel like, you know, equal work for equal people pay. The answer isn't necessarily, well, then everybody should be paid terribly. I think it should be the opposite. But uh, I yeah. like the car. But that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, the package is a different thing. Like the driver, the car, all that. Uh, I'm not saying that, but more just like this idea, oh, we can pay them less. Uh, yeah. the expectation that should have that kind of package? <laughs> you know, it's just like, well, you're likely to have a pretty easy life in Nairobi. Do you really need such a hefty package? That you're not going to work in a hostile city. Unless, of course, you are. And in that sense, by all means. But I mean, for the most part, you're living in a developed part of an African city. And I just wonder if the kind of lifestyle expectations are fair anymore. I mean, I don't know if that still happens if people have villas and cars and that sort of thing. I mean, of course, you would have a bureau car, but just that what sounds like a very easy life. I don't know if that's still happens and if it does i don't know if it's still necessary because africa is not and i speak particularly about africa it's not the big scary place that it used
used to be. You probably have Netflix and Wi-Fi. So is your job as hard as it used to be? I don't know. Yeah, I can't speak to Africa, but I know other places it does seem to be going away very quickly. Certainly people my age don't have that. I think some older people might have been grandfathered in, but I think even for a lot of them, it's going away very quickly. Yeah, my only question is if it's a quote-unquote hostile environment. Yeah, I have no idea. I think it's still probably the same there and hasn't changed. Okay, and then next we'll get into a story or two, maybe just one story. I know we been running a bit long. So if you could pick a story that you're proud of and just walk us through how you got the idea, how you went about reporting it, and just kind of the whole process. So the story that's part that I'm most proud of, and the one particular feature, would be the story I did on a textile factory in Lubumbashi in southern DRC. It was the first time I was chosen as a fellow for the International Women's Media Foundation. I'd gotten on the idea because I was beginning to cover culture for courts. And to a large extent what we see as Ankara or African print, it, it's becoming the, the sort of unofficial insignia for what it means to be African. And the prints come in all sorts of shapes, varieties, and, and they're, they're not linked to one particular group. Well, in some cases they are, for example, in West Africa, but to a large extent, you know, they're the prints that are made by the Dutch company of Lisco, but they're seen as Af- so-called African print, and that's the one that everyone loves. And we all know that it's no longer really created in Africa. It's made, as I said, in the Netherlands by this company of Lisco, but also in increasing in Chinese factories, textile factories. And so I found what I thought was one of the last factories in the DRC. And the, the reason I looked at the fabric in the DRC is because, for one, we know now, thanks to Vogue, but also that Congolese people arguably are fantastically well-dressed. They are known as great tailors. There was a movement that came out of the DRC, and I'd been in Brazzaville a couple of years before and just saw the tailoring, and it was amazing. And so I wanted to do something on that. And also just because clothing and print is a point of pride. And I didn't want to talk about Congolese. I I didn't want to talk about them just in terms of the war and in terms of the pillaging of resources. And I did do some stories in that, but the print story in particular was because this was something that Congolese held on to and said, these are our skills, this is what we're proud of, this is what we're known for. In respect of what's happening around our country, we're able to create these beautiful clothes. And so I did some research and I found that the Lubumbashi was home to one of the last, I think were only two local manufacturers left and Lubumbashi was in one and the other one is in the northern DRC. And when we got to Lubumbashi, it turns out that the factory had closed down. You know, I, I got there and I was just, I was devastated. I was like, oh, this was the story that I had come to focus on, that and cobalt mining. So the cobalt mining story went ahead, but I was just kind of gutted that the textile story didn't work out. So we went back and forth and we couldn't find anyone. We said, well, let's try and find someone that worked there. Maybe they can talk about what that was like. I kept going back and I stood outside and I was working with a fixer. So I understand the politics of working with a fixer. A fixer was a fantastic journalist and has huge local contacts, but he used to couldn't really find anyone and we stood outside the factory and this guy the wide farms had gone from being a supervisor to selling phone vouchers on the street and I said well do you know what might have happened to this factory and he said well actually I was a supervisor in said factory and it's just a case of it's an opportunity for him but also just sheer stubbornness that he set up his stand to sell uh, phone airtime vouchers outside of what used to be his old factory and he also used to work as a photographer so he also took photos of people outside of the old factory so 
I began to interview him and what I found was he'd instigated a lawsuit against the factory and it had gone nowhere and that, you know, a lot of the families that were living in Lubumbashi had moved and, you know, that had fallen into abject poverty because the factory had closed down and there was no one and, and they just weren't able to support their families. And the thing about it was that he then introduced me to a former designer who'd taken great pride in coming up with these patterns and the patterns are often used to deflect something like a public holiday or something that was happening in the country. So they were really significant. And they told me the story about how Chinese manufacturers had come into the country and had begun to copy their patterns and were stealing their designs and making cheaper versions of it and then selling it back into the Congolese market at a much lower price and a lower quality. But as the economy was tanking, people were willing to buy a lower quality and their stuff was more expensive. So wait, so they would steal the designs, but they wouldn't set up factories there. They would send it back to the factory in China and the factory in China would make it. Is that right? That's exactly it. The factory in China makes it and then on a cheaper, thinner kind of quality, synthetic, and then of cotton, and then they would send it back, flood the Congolese and African markets, Tanzania, neighboring Congo, Brazzaville, flood the market, and local vendors and co-ops would be sort of coerced to buy from the Chinese manufacturer as opposed to the Congolese manufacturer. And the works in the Congolese manufacturing approach the courts, try to protect their designs by adding numbers to the cloth. Each piece of cloth had a different number or a different pattern right in the corner so that they would know whether it was locally made or made by the Chinese and they would sit in the markets and check every piece of fabric to try and get people to buy locally made. It just didn't work and there were promises from the government that they would protect local jobs but that fell away and when they filed a lawsuit, I traced it back to the local court and when I got to the courtroom, there was literally just a stack of court papers, just stacks and stacks of other lawsuits, of other not just of this case but of others that just had gotten nowhere in the Lubumbashi court. So stacks of yellowing papers all the way up to the ceiling. So it was clear that this lawsuit was going to go nowhere mm-hmm. and that these people lost their jobs and it was so poignant that the designer had started building a house from the money that he was making for his family and in building his own house you know he was living inside a zinc corrugated iron hut inside what was supposed to be the building and he never completed his house so he was living in the shell of what was meant to be the home he was building and you know the supervisor had gone from being a supervisor to selling phone vouchers on the street and there were just cases like that where they had lost the control of being able to manufacture these cloths. And then what also happened is the cloths lost their significance. They didn't reflect a cultural tie or significant day in the city. They just became genetic patterns. And I spoke to the vendors who were saying, we need to make ends meet. And while we want to support local manufacturing, it's just it's just impossible. And they were talking about just once the local manufacturing closed down, the imported fabric, the price began to rise again. So then people joined cooperatives and trying to stay above it. But it's just this desperate attempt to hold onto a piece of culture that's become synonymous with who you are as a people, but you no longer have any control over it. So that was the one that, that I was particularly proud of. Cool. Yeah. Wow. So is there any optimistic outlook for that? It's a story of manufacturing around the continent and not just manufacturing, but also mining where Africans are losing and still losing control over their natural resources and their culture. For example, in South Africa, we had a huge textile industry and the government failed to protect it against Chinese imports to the point where Cape Town's textile industry is virtually non-existent. So you have examples of that happening over and over. And this was just how it devastated what was supposed to be the DRC's economic capital. And it's hard for people to imagine now because when they think of the DRC, they think of this water 
historical country, but in the 1970s, the pictures they showed me was of um, an area that had ambitions that seemed like a functional city. It attracted a large Greek community because they felt that this was the city that was going places. And so for all of that to sort of fall apart, where unless you got a job on the mines, and even that's a precarious position surrounding copper and cobalt mines, you know, unless you got that kind of job, you would have no future. And what I found frustrating was the former supervisor was able to talk about how this was a skill that he had learned and it was something that he could hold on to and say, this is something that I can do and I can exchange it on the market. And his sons didn't have that sort of opportunity. Even though he was trying to put them through school, he was trying to get them to college of some sort. He just said, well, once they get out, I just don't know where they'll go because there just aren't opportunities unless they're willing to go and work in a copper mine. So it's just how devastating it can be when you're unable to protect a local resource. Yeah, that's a shame. Okay, so then I guess we'll move on to what's called the lightning round. If you're ready, then we'll get into that. Yeah, let's go. So first question, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? I rely on newsletters a lot, uh, email newsletters. So I have signed up to the Atlantic newsletter, the New York Times World newsletter. I signed up to the Skim as well. So, <laughs> so those are my, so that's usually where my day starts with the newsletters. And then I know the Reuters URL by heart is af.reuters.com. That's where I look it out to see what else is going on. I mean, there's some local publications that also have newsletters, which I also rely on, like the Daily Maverick. And then the Times Live, which is Times Group here in South Africa, they also have a Cool. What is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun that doesn't have to do with work? I am almost embarrassed to admit how much I love rubbish reality TV. I mean, I want to say that I watch documentaries, which I do. But to be entirely honest, when I need to switch off, I've become a fan of the housewives genre. They've now created a housewives of Johannesburg genre. Oh, really? It's, it's cringeworthy. I see this is a housewives of Sydney also. So I'm interested to know how the genre sort of exports itself. It's, it's terrible. It's just the worst thing. <laughs> Still, yeah, that's interesting. To, someday in the future, historians will be writing comparative literature things about <laughs> real housewives in all different countries or something. I feel like it's probably already happening. And then what's the best article, whatever piece of journalistic work that you've consumed recently? So the most recent was the New York Times 1619 podcast. And I just devoured it in one go. Luckily, I don't have to be at work anymore. That gives me time. I thought, you know, slavery in America has been done, right? We all kind of know. But the manner in which the podcast really pulled it into the present was really interesting. I was surprised at how they were able to find new angles to a story that's been told so often. If I had the kind of resources at my most ambitious, I'd like to do something like that on African stories where you pull the links between the past and the present, but how people are living now and things you take for granted and just how deep their roots go into the past. So yeah, I really enjoy that piece. Cool. Is there any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't related to your job? Could be anything. History. I, I tried to read a lot of history. Is there a particular region or any particular type of historical reading that appeals to you? I'm really fascinated with American history around independence and creating a republic and a democracy and what that meant. So I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and reading about that and spending my money on Jill Lepore books. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, because <laughs> I mean, she's got such a great way of telling history, right? It's just personable. She's a good storyteller. And I think that's great. My particular interest around American history is A, how a country tells the story of itself 
and how it identifies itself. If a country were to walk into a room with other countries, how would the US in the 18th and 19th century identify itself and how does it introduce itself later? And I think about it a lot because of how South Africa is trying to create its own identity and how it introduces itself. If there were to be a cocktail party of countries, what would South Africa say when it says, hi, my name is South Africa and I, you know, and how you build a story that everybody can get behind, a story that makes you proud. It's, it's a very nationalistic project and I'm fascinated by how the U.S. has been able to do that. And then I look at, you know, South Africa's identity used to be this country of reconciliation and the Rainbow Nation, but, you know, it, that's fallen away and now it's a country of strife and inequality. And of course, you know, it's not necessarily that everyone in the United States was able to pursue life, liberty and happiness, but it was something that they were able to get everyone to buy into. But yeah, just how do you build yourself as a country so soon after independence and democracy? Next question is, how do you manage your work-life balance? I was feeling quite burnt out by the time I moved on from quotes to the TV station. And it was because with digital journalism in particular, you know what your numbers are, you know how your stories are doing all the time, and you have to feed the beast. And quotes had a very different culture where you could say, I'm feeling burnt out, I need to rest, and you could take that rest. But of course, because Quotes Africa was so new and small, and we take taken on the responsibility, and, and I think I'd taken it too personally. So work-life balance went out the window, much to my detriment. And then I'd moved, and I didn't take a moment to stop and say, I need to take a break. What I did instead was I went and joined another startup because it seemed like a fun adventure. And I have to concede that by the time I finished up with that startup, the local news station on October 31st, I was utterly exhausted. I'm just crawling through the world. And also, I think the thing that becomes quite exhausting is for journalists, particularly the stories that you're covering. And if you feel like you're not making a dent, it can become rather overwhelming and exhausting. And you feel like you're covering political disaster after political disaster or conflict after conflict. It does eat away at you. And it was actually an Uber driver that made me think about it last week because she asked me, well, how do you cope with the journalists? Because you've seen some shit. And I said, yeah, you know, we have also had some run-ins. But the thing that I was really tired of was covering gender-based violence and femicide. And I should just say a woman being killed in South Africa because I just wrapped up a documentary on gender-based violence and major cases in South Africa. And I'm tired. I used to think that work-life balance used to be about managing my time, which is very important and getting enough exercise and doing yoga and eating healthy and that sort of thing. But I think it's also about your mental health. And I don't have a solution for that just yet. But I do know that just conceding that I was really tired of covering stories about young women being killed or issues of racial injustice. And they're not even big things in South Africa. They're just like tiny incidents that are blown up, but they're blown up because of the country's history. And so those two issues, I need to find a new balance and a new way of covering those. I'm glad to hear now that uh, your contract's up, you can kind of take a break and reassess. The next question is, is Twitter important to you? I have an ambivalent relationship with Twitter. I think Twitter is important to stay on top of the conversation and see what people are talking about, but you don't want Twitter to be your assignment editor. And I think that that can happen, particularly with digital media, where we need to provide takes on stuff. And even like with the TV station that's trying to stay on top of social media, where a trending topic can become a news item and it isn't necessarily always the case. And I think the important thing to remember with Twitter is what you do is you you get to connect with people who are having interesting conversations. You get to hear their thoughts for free uh, without having to call them. 
And at the same time, you need to remind yourself, particularly in places where not everybody has access to Twitter, that your Twitter timeline is biased and that's not necessarily a reflection of the larger population. And so when you're coming into a country and you need to write a story about a a reflection of what's happening in that country, it is hardly ever going to be always what's happening on Twitter. You need to talk to people on the street. Yeah, and just also the kind of people who have access to Twitter to a large extent, particularly in South Africa, would be people who are upwardly mobile, people who are middle class, people who are able to go online on phones and that's not a reflection of the majority of the country. So in that sense, Twitter can become tricky, but it's also where the politicians make all these statements. But I don't think that we should write off Facebook. There are still so many groups and stuff on Facebook. I was doing a story a week and a half ago about the refugee crisis in South Africa and how police were clashing with refugees. And with videos and stuff on Twitter, I found the organizers on Facebook and they had been talking about the sit-in and that's how I tracked them down. And people have these candid conversations, these long conversations, those comments that turn into essays. And that's often where you find really helpful so I wouldn't get rid of Facebook just yet. And also, if you're covering, I don't know, other developing countries like Brazil, but I think for us here, WhatsApp has become huge. Being part of the right WhatsApp group and tracking people via WhatsApp and connecting with them via WhatsApp has been a, a huge boon, I have to say also. So yeah, I think as a journalist, I'm probably more reliant on WhatsApp than I am on Twitter. Yeah, honestly, in Brazil, 50% of the job is just being on WhatsApp, talking to people on WhatsApp, like you get the minister's WhatsApp and then you try to get information out of him later and the groups for all the different subject areas and things like that. You're not on a WhatsApp group during an election or something. <laughs> You'd miss out on huge development. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. crazy how dominant it is. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Not necessarily trade places, but definitely someone I'd like to shadow would be Joan Didion. Although I feel like she'd have a great time in Jobot too. Just because I'm reading slash going through her essays while I'm figuring out what I need to do and what I'd like to do next. And the manner in which she was able to capture life in California, the mundane and the life shifting and was so interesting. And if I was able to do just a little bit of that and figure out how she did it and how she saw a place that she was so familiar with, because that's where I find myself, where I'm in a city that I've known my whole life. But I still think that there are things that I am missing and things that tell me something about where the city's going, where the country's going, where the world is going. So if you're able to find those sorts of things in the familiar, I think if she could just take me through it for a bit, I would appreciate her insights. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I would go back to myself at university, particularly at grad school. A lot of the time felt like trying to get to the next thing. And like you needed to get the internship, you needed to get to this, you needed to get the scholarship. You needed... So it was always grasping at something. And what I say to myself is to relax a little bit and look around and take more of it in and just from there think of the kinds of stories that I wanted to do. And I guess I'm having that opportunity now to think of what I'd like to do as opposed to going from organization to organization, master to master, to just think about the kinds of stories that you want to do. And also, you know, uh, to eat less pizza. I could <laughs> Uh, I discovered that huge slice and it was just downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was some great, there was that $1 pizza place next to Columbia for a while where you'd get a huge piece of pizza for $1. And I mean, you know, if you're a broke student. Sure. Let's see. And then what is one thing most people don't know about you? That I do yoga and I, I love it and it keeps me sane, but I don't put it on social media. I think that we should all have this one thing that has nothing to do with social media. So there's no trace of 
the fact that I spend a lot of time doing yoga and that I am uh, doing my yoga teacher training. I'm halfway through to be an official instructor. I'm not actually going to be a yoga instructor, but I just wanted to learn more about it. But yeah, there is no public trace of me as a trainee yogi. So I guess that's something that people don't know. Cool. Yeah. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media about journalists and why? I don't have a necessarily a favorite film or show, but I watched The Loudest Voice starting Russell Crowe about the creation of Fox News. And I was watching it at a time when I was working at a TV station that was starting off the ground too. I mean, look, the focus of course was on Roger Ailes and just this power that he wielded, but also this put into sexual harassment and this sexism in the newsroom itself and what he wielded. But I think what I took away from it also was just the power of being able to shape a narrative. And if you overlooked the terrible prosthetics and the potential overacting from Russell Crowe, the takeaway how that television was in that time was able to shift the entire political dynamic. I don't know that that might still be possible if you were to start a new TV station right now. I don't know if that would work. It was like a perfect storm. I liked watching that. It was interesting. I used to like the newsroom and then they went to Uganda. Do you remember that episode? It was terrible. It was just like, wow. I didn't get I mean, that far in the show, no. I'm horrendously preachy anyway and I was just watching because I've already established that I have a high tolerance for rubbish TV and <laughs> I, was, and I was watching and when they got to the episode where they sent a junior journalist to Uganda and she was kidnapped. It was just so implausible. I just gave up on the show. And then she came back shell-shocked and she suffered from PTSD and art was just terrible. And the problem with portrayals of journalism, they can become very self-righteous. So that's why I'm not going to put my name to a favorite show because, you know, midway through your cringing, let's be honest. Like, remember at the end of the post when Middle Street walks down the stairs of the Supreme Court and, like, women are silently nodding at her? I found that moment very cringeworthy. But on a more serious note, the book that I think influenced a lot how I looked at covering Africa and how I hope once I cover places beyond Africa, which I do intend to do, is A Continent for the Taking by Howard French. I did the book before I got to Colombia. It's articulated how I felt about coverage about Africa up until then and also gave an example about how to change it. You know, he's an American journalist working in Africa, but he didn't write about it as a parachuter. You know, he wrote about what the continent taught him and the importance of knowing the history of a place and being able to situate it in the context. And I think that that doesn't just work for Africa. I think it works for any place, whether it's the Midwest or Brazil or, well, the, the Congo in his case, where to know the history of a place and to understand the context that you find yourself in as a journalist and the people that you were reporting about. I think that that's a lesson that I hold dear. So on a more serious note, a continent of the taking. And it's his memoir of being a journalist on the continent. And it's been the best portrayal of what I'd like to be as a journalist. Cool. Yeah. Um, those are all great new recommendations, minus the newsroom. Okay. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I mean, it would be now that my yoga secret is out, maybe I'd be a yoga instructor. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I still want to be an author. I still want to be a writer. So if I was not in the nonfiction storytelling world, I would definitely be in the fiction storytelling world. I still do love literature. Sure. So like a novelist or something. Yeah, which is like the most cliche answer for any journalist. What would you be? Well, I'd write a book. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, that's people. less qualifications aside and probably more like, you know, all the massive risk and tremendous amount of work aside. But if I were to risk it all, I think that would be what I would do, yeah. Cool. So that's all the questions. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, making time to talk to me. Thanks. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lindsay Shutel, a freelancer in South Africa. 
I'll post links to some of Lindsay's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, hornpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. It helps get the podcast more attention. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, January 26th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.